It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks if I can analyze the Richard Yonke murder case. So this case involves four members of the Yonke family. The father, Richard Chester Yonke, his wife, Maria, and two children, Richard John Yonke and Deborah Yonke. To avoid confusion here, I will refer to the father as Mr. Yonke and the son as Richard. At the time of this incident, Mr. Yonke was 38, Maria was 40, Richard was 16, and Deborah was 17 years old. Mr. Yonke was an IRS investigator who moved his family around quite a few times. Eventually, the family ended up in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He had been a sergeant in the Army and had served in Korea. He was described as having a short temper, distrusting everybody, being secretive, defensive, and antagonistic. He loved to tell people that because of his job in the IRS, he could get them in trouble if they became his enemy. On occasion, he would grab a firearm and patrol his house and the land around it. He would talk about how he really hoped that one day an intruder would come along so he could blow their head off. Mr. Yonke mistreated his family for many years. He was physically harmful to his wife and two children, and specifically with Deborah, he was sexually harmful as well. Now with his son Richard, the physical violence started when Richard was just two years old. Mr. Yonke would become violent for just about any reason. For example, if one of the children broke a toy, if they coughed, he would get angry if they left faucets running, or if they scraped silverware on dinner plates, he actually made the family switch to plastic utensils instead. Richard suffered from asthma when he was younger. When he felt an attack coming on, he would run into his room and stick his face in a pillow to muffle the sound of the coughing. He did not want to anger his father. When Richard would go to the bathroom, his father would say, you've got one minute, as he pounded on the door. Richard once had a gun pointed at him by Mr. Yonke when he snuck out of the room at night to make his way to the refrigerator to get a snack. This takes us to May 2, 1982. Mr. Yonke gets angry at Richard for not doing his chores and physically attacks him. Richard runs to the house of his ROTC instructor, who took him to the sheriff's office. Everyone there believed Richard's side of the story. After all, he had quite a few bruises. They warned Mr. Yonke that if he did this again, he would go to jail. Richard was temporarily going to be placed in a foster home, but none were available. He was given the option of sleeping at the jail or a group foster center. He decided to go home. A social worker who came out to the house three weeks later 
determined that this was a one-time substantiated incident of low priority. He never talked to Richard or Deborah alone during that visit, but he did compliment their parents on having a beautiful house. He must have recently read an article titled How to Be a Terrible Social Worker by Using Compliment-Based Violence Mitigation Strategies. Several months after this, and just two weeks before the shooting, the social worker placed a two-minute call to the residence. Maria answered the phone and told him everything was fine. Richard was furious that his reputation and his job could be in jeopardy because of these allegations, so he increased the severity and frequency of the physical attacks against Richard, saying that if Richard ever tried to report him again, he would really give him something to talk to the sheriffs about. This takes us to November 13, 1982. Mr. Yonke slapped Deborah, Richard pushed him against the wall, and Deborah punched him in the shoulder. This was the first time that Deborah ever fought back against her father. On the evening of November 16, 1982, just three days later, there was an altercation between Mr. Yonke and Richard that started because Richard had been in an argument with his mother. Deborah witnessed the attack. Mr. Yonke told Richard, I'm going to get rid of you. Deborah jumped in and said that she would leave if her brother was thrown out of the house. Mr. Yonke told Deborah to shut up, referred to her using an expletive, and sent her to her room. From her room, she heard a second assault that had both verbal and physical components. Mr. Yonke pushed Richard against the wall and told him he was disgusted with him and he didn't want him to be there when he got back. The parents went out to dinner to celebrate the 20th anniversary of their first meeting. During the time they were gone, Richard developed a plan to murder his father. He wanted his sister to leave, but he couldn't find the keys to either of the two vehicles that remained at the house. Richard told Deborah that she would have to stay. She did not object to this. Richard changed into darker clothes. He loaded a 12-gauge shotgun with slugs and placed other loaded firearms in backup positions in various places like the family room and the basement. Among the weapons were a Ruger Mini-14, an M1 carbine, a 357 Magnum revolver, and a 45 caliber semi-automatic handgun. There were actually 33 shotguns, rifles, and pistols in the house. Richard did not load all of them, but he did load quite a few. He incorporated his sister into his plan, showing her how to operate the M1 carbine. Richard specifically selected the M1 because it had less recoil, and he thought his sister could handle it. The pair turned on a number of interior lights, thinking this would create a night blindness effect for their father if he were to somehow enter the house. They turned off the exterior lights, except for the one that lit the driveway, trying to provide a clear path so they could more easily murder their father. They also put the family pets in the basement to keep them safe. Richard waited in the garage. Deborah tried to join him, but he led her back into the house and told her to remain there. As he did this, Deborah asked Richard if he was going to kill their mother as well. He responded no, and Deborah asked him to kill their mother. It appears as though Deborah really got excited in the moment there. At 6.15 p.m., the parents came home. Mr. Yonke walked up the driveway toward the garage after parking his vehicle. Richard fired the shotgun six times through the door, striking Mr. Yonke four times. He was hit in the chest, back, and hip. When Deborah heard the shots, she debated on whether or not to pick up the M1 carbine. She was still thinking about it 
when she heard her brother come down the hall after exiting the garage. Deborah realized that her mother had not been shot and said to him, what about mom? Are you going to shoot her too? So again, she just couldn't let that go. She really had a thing for that particular homicide. She went into her room, turned off her stereo, grabbed a book and a jacket, and along with Richard, exited the house through a window in the master bedroom. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. The pair separated not long after this because they lost each other in the darkness. Deborah made her way to a shopping mall, then a roller rink where she talked to a few of her friends. One directed her to a clubhouse and an apartment complex where she spent the night. When she woke up the next morning, she took a newspaper from an apartment doorstep and read about the murder. After returning the newspaper, because she wouldn't want to commit a crime here, she walked to a nearby park where she was picked up by the police. Richard headed toward the lights of Cheyenne. He did not have an escape plan. He ended up going to a girl's house that he knew after avoiding the police by hiding under a camper. The girl's stepfather wondered why he was there. Richard told him he had shot his father. They called the police, and Richard was arrested. Richard and Deborah were charged with murder in the first degree and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Richard was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter, he was sentenced to 5 to 15 years in prison. Deborah was found guilty of aiding and abetting voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to 3 to 8 years in prison. 
the governor of Wyoming commuted Richard's sentence, ordering him to be incarcerated in a boys' school until he was 21, but he was released earlier than that. The governor also commuted Deborah's sentence under the condition that she received a 30-day intensive mental health assessment. Now moving to the analysis. Mr. Yonke appeared to be narcissistic and had difficulty managing his anger. He left his job in Phoenix because they didn't recognize his talents. He felt entitled to have his way in every situation. He bragged about his power and authority at the IRS. He viewed other people as beneath him and thought they should fear him. He also appeared to have obsessive-compulsive personality traits. He was moralistic, rigid, demanding, wasted nothing, and perfectionistic. He couldn't stand things to be disorganized, out of place, or dirty. Eventually, he grew so tired of dealing with his children that their very existence aggravated him. To say that he lacked parenting skills would be a bit of an understatement. In addition to the maltreatment of both Richard and Deborah, he taught Richard lessons that were ill-advised. Sometimes when he attacked Richard, Yonke would put his chin out and say, take a free shot, and then beat Richard after he failed to defend himself. He used to tell stories about how people would be pushed around until they got big enough to fight back. It was like Mr. Yonke was planning his own homicide. Right after Mr. Yonke was shot, Maria believed that he was gunned down by one of his many enemies. Apparently, he was a popular guy. As far as Maria, there's really not much information. She did testify, essentially, on behalf of her children. It seems reasonable to believe that she was the target of Mr. Yonke's rage as well. Perhaps she believed he would change someday. She referred to the family house in Cheyenne as Alcatraz, which seems to indicate she recognized life there wasn't so great. After being released, Richard went to live with Maria, who was remarried by then. Richard and Deborah endured a lot of suffering at the hands of their father. I don't think they were guilty of murder or manslaughter beyond a reasonable doubt. Richard sought help from the system, and it let him down. His father made it clear that if Richard filed one more report, something bad was going to happen. Technically, of course, Richard should not have killed him, but under the circumstances, it's easy to understand why he did. The prosecution made it seem as though Richard was a cold-blooded murderer because of the preparation, including the fact that he was lying in wait. But everything about his crime indicates he was afraid, as opposed to dominant. He had all those backup guns, an idea that he obtained from Conan the Barbarian. When will society stop paying for that movie? Richard kept an ROTC whistle with him to give him courage. He blew the whistle before firing the first shot, like he needed that extra boost of courage and recklessness combined. Richard was glad his sister was there in the event that he froze up. I think he was genuinely worried that he wouldn't be able to commit the murder and his father would kill him upon discovering all the guns that Richard had placed around the house. Also, Richard did not have a plan for after the shooting. He didn't really seem to have any escape plan. He simply ran from the house. When weighing all of Richard's behavior, this really seems more like a slow-moving self-defense case as opposed to a first-degree murder case. As far as Deborah, the state's case against her was even weaker than their case against Richard. It was really based on the statements she allegedly made to Richard when he was committing the crime. She did initially try to talk Richard out of the murder, saying, can't we just go away someplace? But Richard made the case that it was necessary, and it had to be done that night. 
there were two things that resulted in her being convicted, handling the M1 carbine and asking Richard to kill her mother. I can understand why that left a chilling effect on the jury. It did seem like it was out of place for the story, like all of a sudden she wants to wipe out both her parents. I imagine the statement caused some tension at holiday get-togethers in the future. Like the mom would say, remember that night when you wanted to have me killed? Good times. It's interesting because Deborah made it seem as though she wasn't positive that a murder would actually take place. She said that she knew Richard was angry and would do something. She just didn't expect that he would blow her father away. Well, Richard did load a shotgun with slugs. Was he going to use it to make his father laugh? There is a reason why no one ever names a shotgun Mr. Tickle. It appears as though Deborah had murder on her mind many months before the crime. She first mentioned the idea of her father dying in the spring of 1982, talking about using poison mushrooms or cyanide. Deborah was described as a dramatic girl, prone to outbursts of nervous laughter and prone to manipulation. For example, she would make up stories about friends that did not exist. A mental health professional for the defense said that she was in a fantasy world, which I think would be consistent with all of the maltreatment she suffered at the hands of Mr. Yonke. Perhaps something like a dissociative state had formed. The last area I want to talk about in this case is the question of mental versus physical harm. The state argued that Mr. Yonke really wasn't that physically harmful. It was really more about mental harm, which they said was irrelevant to a self-defense case. If one were to assume that the state was accurate in their assertion about what type of harm really took place, this brings up an interesting point. Is harm done to somebody's mental health ever a justification for a physically based defense, like using a weapon to launch a projectile at the perpetrator? I don't think that self-defense should be allowed under these circumstances, but I think that perpetrators know that as well. They know they do not have to bear the consequences as long as they only jeopardize a victim's mental health. So essentially, this gives a perpetrator a safety net. They can explore this area of maltreatment as much as they want and never have to face any meaningful consequences. It's quite an incentive to commit this type of harm. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.